0: There has been a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union and the Soviets have admitted that it happened. The Soviet version is
1: this: Auch drei Tage nach dem Ausbruch ist der Nuklearbrand noch immer nicht unter Kontrolle. Die sowjetische Nachrichtenagentur Tass meldete, zwei Menschen seien ums Leben gekommen. Le
2: conseguenze del disastro nella centrale nucleare di Chernobyl in Unione Sovietica concentrano quasi totalmente l'attenzione di tutto il mondo. An official announcement from the Council of Ministers. There has been an accident at the Chernobyl Atomic Power Station. One of the atomic reactors was damaged. The consequences of the accident are being taken care of. It uh, was able to uh, stop the nuclear program in Italy. This was the main consequence of the Chernobyl disaster. The immediate effects
3: of Chernobyl were uh, very dramatic in Sweden.
0: Calls into question, really, the credibility of the entire communist project in East Germany and Poland.
1: On April 26th, 1986, around 1.30 in the morning, an explosion took place in reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. During the hours and days that followed, plumes of radioactive material were spewed out into the atmosphere, reaching large parts of the Western USSR and Europe. The impact of this tragic event had both short and long-term effects in many countries on many levels, including how nuclear energy would be seen for years to come. Welcome to The Honest Podcast, exploring the relationship between nuclear energy and society with help from some of the best and brightest researchers on the topic. I'm your host, Mark Fonseca-Rendeiro, Today we're looking at the legacy of Chernobyl, an important example when we think about the relationship between society and nuclear energy. We're listening to some of the cases our guests presented at a recent conference in Berlin entitled, Chernobyl, Turning Point or Catalyst, Changing Practices, Structures and Perceptions in Environmental Policy and Politics, 1970s to 1990s. We'll talk today about East Germany, Poland, and Italy, with help from Luigi Pizioni of the University of Calabria, as well as Julie Alt from the University of Utah, and we will round it all off with Paul Josephson of Colby College. But to start this conversation about the legacy of Chernobyl, we begin today with Arna Kaiser and the story of the very nation that even back in 1986, despite being a great distance from Chernobyl, was the first to notice something was wrong.
3: The first word that something was seriously wrong came from this power plant in eastern Sweden, where workers coming on the job registered abnormally high levels of radiation on their bodies. Although the levels were not high enough to harm humans and no accident had occurred at that plant, it was shut down. And as tests were conducted, similar puzzling reports of high radiation came in from all over Scandinavia. Yeah, my name is Arne Kaiser. I'm a a professor of history of technology at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And my special field of interest has been, well, energy history, also the history of infrastructures in general, uh, and and also Swedish nuclear history. Uh, I have also been for uh, more than 15 years cooperating in a European research network called Tensions of Europe. Uh, and I have also uh, well I'm also presently member of the honest project on uh, Monday the 28th that's uh, about 30 hours after the accident had occurred there was uh, at the nuclear power station in Forsmark located hundred kilometers north of Stockholm there was a big surprise when the morning shift went on because uh, everybody had radiation when they you know they have this daily control and uh, then the the immediate suspicion was that there was a leakage in the in the nuclear power station so uh, well uh, people were rather <laughs> nervous tried to find out if there was a leakage but then they found out that there was no leakage and that uh, so, uh, that actually the radiation did not come from the nuclear power station itself.
1: The report from Voschmark was sent to Stockholm, to the nuclear regulatory agency, where reports from all over Sweden were coming in, even reports from Finland. The conclusion was the same. Radiation levels were high, something bad has happened, but the source is not here.
3: And then they put together a crisis team that, uh, well, was prepared, so to say, with both with Uh, nuclear physicists and with meteorologists and this crisis team fairly quickly could uh, decide that this was not a nuclear weapons test it was actually an accident and looking at the isotopes uh, they could also uh, well they could also Analyze what kind of reactor it was and how long ago the accident had taken place. And then uh, the meteorologists looked at the, the winds and they could identify a, f- a few nuclear stations that were probable uh, sources. And after additional analysis, they could actually uh, even identify Chernobyl.
1: What they had detected in Scandinavia was still not public knowledge in the Soviet Union. But meanwhile, that infamous radioactive cloud was already having an impact in Sweden.
3: It soon became clear that the the fallout over Sweden was quite severe. In fact, I I believe that the fallout cesium was larger in Sweden than in any other country outside the Soviet Union. Uh, In places where it had rained that night, the contamination levels were actually fairly high. For example, uh, milk from cows had to be discarded. Uh, And much of this area was in the north of Sweden. There was fairly much cesium in in reindeers. in the following year, 80% of all the reindeers in Sweden were actually discarded. So for the, for the reindeer herders, it was a big blow.
1: But the story of the impact and legacy of Chernobyl obviously does not end with the immediate environmental damage that Arne is describing. The bigger question we're posing on today's program is, what changed in Sweden when it comes to nuclear energy policy?
3: to understand the effects of Chernobyl on Sweden you have to put it in a in the Swedish context and uh, six years before the Chernobyl accident we had had a referendum on nuclear power in Sweden and and that referendum in turn was fairly much triggered by the Three Mile Island accident so the, uh, the, there was a growing anti-nuclear movement in Sweden in the 1970s, and they demanded a referendum. But the the, the big parties uh, did not want a referendum. But after the Three Mile Island accident, they changed their mind uh, because there was so much anxiety after the accident. Uh, so in... Uh, 1979 and early 1980, there was an extremely uh, strong debate on the future of nuclear power in Sweden. But the referendum, uh, well, in a way, uh, the the, the pro-nuclear side won. On well, for tactical reasons, they had said that they wanted to phase out nuclear power too, but in a well, in a far distant future. (laughs)
1: As a result of losing the 1980 referendum, the anti-nuclear movement suffered a great loss, which, according to Arna, would also result in a drop in the size and strength of the movement. The Chernobyl accident would reawaken the long-disappointed social movement in Sweden, sparking renewed protests against nuclear energy. But even this resurgence would somehow not last.
3: Well, one could say that the anti-nuclear movement was not really able to to regain its old strength again so it faded away again after a few months Uh, and then the government and the the energy minister that had been so active personally she uh, appointed a commission to uh, assess the Chernobyl accident and to assess if it uh, well uh, if it was if it gave reasons to change the, the Swedish policy, and this commission worked fairly quickly, and uh, well, it pointed out that uh, the Soviet reactors were very different from the mm-hmm. Swedish ones, and that uh, well, the, the commission made the assessment that uh, well, previous uh, risk assessments of Swedish reactors were still valid. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, in a way, and they also um, made the assessment that it would be very, very expensive economically to phase out nuclear power plants quickly. So what Birgitta Dahl did after the Chernobyl accident was to say that well, if we want to uh, phase out nuclear power, all Swedish 12 nuclear power stations, we have to begin sometime. So. Uh, and Chernobyl reminds us that nuclear power is actually dangerous. So she suggested that uh, the first reactors should be phased out in 1994 and 96. The reaction on, uh, on this proposal was from the anti-nuclear side that it was much too, too little, that it should go much faster, but they did not have so much stay anymore. But there was also a very strong reaction from the nuclear industry, from the power companies, and, importantly, from the trade unions.
1: The thing to keep in mind is that the powerful Swedish trade unions were pro-nuclear energy and strongly opposed to phasing out nuclear plants. After engaging in a battle within the governing Social Democratic Party, the trade unions won. And
3: this led... Uh, to a uh, replacement of the energy minister, a trade union leader became new energy minister, and he then um, made a new decision that one should not start the phase out in ninety four uh, ninety six, 96, uh, but that, well, that should be decided sometime far in the future. So in 1991, everything was back to where it was before the Chernobyl accident. I mean, it, it had, uh, in the short run, it had a fairly, uh, I mean, it, it was much debated, etc. And uh, after, f- well, in the longer run, it did not have very much impact. So I would say in, in between.
1: From the in-between impact of Chernobyl on nuclear policy in Sweden, to a different kind of political wind blowing in Southern Europe, coming up, it's the Italian case of Chernobyl's legacy, you're listening to The Honest Podcast.
3: The civilian plant in question is in the Ukraine. It's something of a showcase facility, featured here in Soviet Life magazine, which extolled its safety record.
1: By 1986, the Italian nuclear energy industry consisted of four plants and what has been described as a previously very pro nuclear media environment. In the 1970s, nuclear energy was seen as an answer to the country's dependency on oil imports. But among the general public, by the late 1980s, a very different view of nuclear energy had emerged.
2: Uh, I am Luigi Piccioni. I teach economic history in the University of Calabria. Uh, Basically, I uh, research in the field of uh, environmental history. My my topic is uh, the history of uh, environmental culture and associations in Italy and in Europe. In the 20th century, when uh, Chernobyl disaster happened, uh, the nuclear um, Italian program uh, was um, of only four new power nuclear power plants for about 10,000 megawatts. So that uh, when Chernobyl happened, uh, the um, the nuclear power had, had become very small, quite small, uh, we can say, because of uh, the opposition, not only by the civil society, by the movements, but also an um, uh, in, uh, in a growing opposition in the political parties. Uh, um, the socialist parties, uh, party that was in the majority uh, was against nuclear power, so that when Chernobyl happened, the situation was... Uh, a little bit fluid."
1: So fluid, in fact, that when they held a referendum in 1987, the anti-nuclear vote hit 75%. And by 1990, all Italy's nuclear power plants were shut down. But you could say, this is the short-term story. What about the long-term impact of Chernobyl on Italy? Or at least, the question of what happened as the decades passed after such an influential accident?
2: Well, you have to consider that uh, after the 1987 uh, referendum that was won by the anti nuclear um, alliance with uh, 75% against uh, nuclear, an earlier referendum was uh, held in um, uh, 2011 uh, because the Berlusconi government wanted to. Uh, reopen the nuclear program in Italy uh, with the uh, and um, with the agreements with the France in um, uh, 2008 and um, uh, another um, referendum was called in 2010 um, the referendum was held just after Fukush- fukushima so that the result was uh, uh, more striking than than, uh, in 1987 because 95 percent of the population voted against nuclear. So uh, the the legacy of Chernobyl is uh, um, uh, a very quiet but very strong hostility to nuclear. You have to bear in mind that Italy is uh, also um, uh, um, a country that is uh, often subject to earthquakes. So nuclear is, is, not, is not safe in general, but in a country as, uh, like Italy, is uh, very, very dangerous. And I think that um, the population uh, know this and is very sensible to this uh, uh, argument.
1: Whereas the Swedish story might have been about short-term environment and political impact, and the long-term returning to the pre-Chernobyl status quo, the Italian story Luigi helps tell is one of a lasting change, a turning point in the history of nuclear energy in Italy that remains that way today. And of course, it may not all be about Chernobyl. As we just heard, between earthquakes and the more recent Fukushima accident, there are more factors at play. Dobry wieczór. Oto komunikat Komisji Rządowej. Działające pod przewodnictwem wicepremiera Zbigniewa wasz komisja. Wie, dass
2: meldet, dass sich im Kernkraftwerk Tschernobyl in der Ukraine eine Havarie ereignet. Untersuchungen, die durchgeführt werden, werden durchgeführt. Untersuchungen, die durchgeführt
4: werden, werden
0: My name is Julie Alt, and I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Utah and I teach modern German and European history. Well in the immediate aftermath, um, both East Germany and Poland, this really became a question of information politics and on some level how far, um, you know, sort of communist countries in Eastern Europe were willing to commit to the idea of glasnost.
1: In 1985, Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev adopted the term glasnost as a political slogan, part of his campaign for increased transparency and openness in the activities of government institutions of the Soviet Union. The period of 86 to 91, when the Soviet Union actually came to an end, is often referred to as glasnost, a time of less censorship and more freedom of information.
0: One of the real questions about glasnost and this openness of information was that um, many East Germans and Poles were already hearing about Chernobyl from uh, Western news sources. And so um, you know, communist countries and you know the GDR and Poland were both like, "Oh, uh, we actually have to respond to this. We can't pretend it hasn't happened.". <laughs>
1: The city council of national deputies tells us that in the case of an
0: accident on the Especially in East Germany and to a lesser extent in Poland, uh, Chernobyl remains an important part of sort of environmental and increasingly oppositional. Um, movements and you know this really calls into Chernobyl calls into question for them the question of whether um, Soviet style communism can care for its citizens at all and it really becomes a very politicized moment Uh, in East Germany you actually have sort of anniversaries of Chernobyl every year where people come together they talk about you know the continued dangers of um, nuclear power and nuclear um, well also it gets tied into the peace movement so um, you know with nuclear weapons as well um, in Poland it also it has less of the environmental impact per se although that's still there um, but it really becomes this sort of politicized question of can you actually as a communist government care for your citizens and increasingly the answer is no. Um, and it calls into question really the credibility of the entire communist project in East Germany and Poland. Uh, environmental movements already had a groundwork in East Germany and in Poland, and they took slightly different forms, but um, you know they've been thinking about coal pollution, uh, water pollution, air pollution, stuff like this, um, and, Chernobyl really sort of puts nuclear energy at the heart of uh, the environmental movements and in some ways actually nuclear energy hadn't been as big of an issue before, especially in Poland. Um, Nuclear energy had really been seen as a way to solve uh, air pollution from coal mining and coal powered um, energy plants. And so now it's almost this moment of like, oh my gosh, never mind, nuclear is not what we want at all. Um, And, you know, it also becomes sort of this existential threat. And so environmental movements in East Germany and in Poland both go from being very sort of local, isolated things responding to, you know, pollution in our water source or, you know, air pollution in uh, the notorious Bitterfeld in uh, East Germany. And now it becomes... Um, this sort of larger crisis, and I think creates a sense of solidarity among um, environmental activists in East Germany and Poland with environmental activists in other countries in the communist bloc, but also on the other side of the Iron Curtain.
1: Cross-border solidarity that goes well beyond the question of nuclear energy winds up uniting previously more isolated groups, active... In the area of the environment or transparency or democratization within the Soviet Union. That's the short and midterm impact of Chernobyl in Poland and East Germany. But would that continue in the long term, and what would it look like as the years went on?
0: In East Germany, uh, there were two nuclear power plants that were more or less in the same design as Chernobyl in operation, and both of them are taken out of operation um, after reunification. And then there's a third one that was going to be constructed uh, at Stendhal outside of Magdeburg, and it is entirely abandoned. Uh, In Poland, similarly, uh, you see this uh, pushback against nuclear power. And although there were two nuclear power plants being built in Poland in the 1980s, um, and they were allegedly seen as a solution to air pollution from coal-powered plants, um, they're both abandoned in the aftermath of Chernobyl. Um, one is outside of Gdansk and another one um, is on the Varta River. And um, to this day, Poland has no nuclear power plants. Uh, they never turn back to it, which in some, on some level is really fascinating because some countries in Eastern Europe, like uh, Czechoslovakia, now Czech Republic, use a lot of nuclear energy, but for whatever reasons, um, Poland doesn't go there and East Germany um, backs away from it, which then fits into sort of also the West German or the West German green narrative of um, getting rid of nuclear energy, which they still say they're on the path to do today. I'd argue they're both a turning point rather than a catalyst, um, but not so much in terms of environmental or nuclear policy an immediate level, but really more in terms of the political situation as a whole. And you know, I argue basically that Chernobyl becomes one of the many factors that contributes to the unraveling of the communist systems.
1: As we approach the end of this program, it has become more clear that while Chernobyl had mixed short, mid, and long-term impact on nuclear policy across borders, it also served as a catalyst for political and social change that had lasting impact. For the final word on today's program, we turn now to Paul Josephson.
4: I'm Paul Josephson. I teach at Colby College, a liberal arts college in Waterville, Maine, and also at Tomsk State University in Siberia. I'm a historian of science and technology. I've written extensively on nuclear power, primarily in the former Soviet Union, but have broad interests, comparative interests, including the United States. So for me as a historian of physics and a historian of science encountering Chernobyl in April of 1986 and then watching it unfold, I was struck in fact by the way in which the Soviet authorities seriously mishandled the risk presented to the Soviet people and the world community, especially in the northern hemisphere, by failing to be forthcoming about the seriousness of the accident. Perhaps they didn't know in the first five or six or ten hours, and then by not protecting their own citizens. This is a state which is founded on the notion of uh, all for the working class, all for the best of humankind, all for our citizens. And yet the tremendous suffering that resulted from the accident uh, should never be forgotten. This was a, a, a crime against the Soviet people. Many people in Ukraine to this day believe that the location of the station and the nature of the disaster had an even greater impact on Ukraine and that the authorities in Moscow in particular uh, designed and located the station uh, out of a kind of environmental imperialism. Thank you. Everyone in every country hears something different when you say the word Chernobyl. And this goes for experts, political leaders, people seeking energy balance, people worried about climate change and wanting to turn away from fossil fuels, researchers, medical specialists, environmentalists, and so on. Uh, Chernobyl, because of the nature of radioactivity, will be with us for a long time, and so all of us need to think about it on so many different levels.
1: That does it for this edition of the Honest Podcast. A reminder that you can subscribe to receive the program automatically in your favorite podcast app. Just search Honest Podcast in any directory. If you'd like to leave feedback or carry on the discussion, you can tweet at Honest 2020 or the History of Nuclear Energy and Society on Facebook. If you'd like to hear the previous versions of this podcast, go to honest2020.eu slash podcasts. Music on today's program was by This Mess Is Mine, Janne, Piano Chocolate, Return to Normal, Ketza, and Julia Kent, all published under CC licenses and available on the Free Music Archive. This program is published under a CC BY SA 4.0 license and edited by me. Special production thank you to Jan-Henrik Meyer. Until next time, I'm Marc Fonseca Rendeiro. Thanks for listening.